This is the Shift Podcast. Coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast, uh, Stepan Burko, a policy expert in Ukraine, reacts to devastating missile strikes in Lviv. Has the safety of the Western city declined? And how are Ukrainians going about their lives in cities that have escaped most of the fighting? Can Canada commit to its immigration promises? Immigration lawyer Jamie Liu helps us understand the challenges immigrants face when moving to Canada, the stress that the war in Ukraine and Afghanistan are putting on the system, and more. Plus, are you okay with politicians? This is the Shift Podcast. Uh, right now, let's do some Are You Okay? Are you okay with whipped cream? Oh, it's like one of the easiest things to be okay with, as long as you're not <laughs> lactose intolerant. I will go through an ungodly amount of cool whip in a very short amount of time. Uh, like I, pumpkin pie, cover it. Yes. Uh, even Laura and I uh, had ice cream uh, over Easter and I found a can and I just like, you know, I'm, over the entire I'm very thing. glad Amazing. that you said cool whip as cool well, whip. because, yes. because there's, there's a difference between cool whip and, you know, traditional whipped cream and mm-hmm. both are excellent. Both are excellent, yes. but man, Cool Whip just being what it is, it's so easy. It's so great. It just, you're right. It makes everything better. Brendan Kelly, yeah, sound much. off. <laughs> ah, it's been quite some time since I've had any Cool Whip. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, a, okay as a once in a while treat, but I if, I feel like it's something you can easily get carried away with. Um, it, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of calories and sugar in that and just a little bit just a small it's i bet you it's something where if you read the back of the can and yeah, actually but, sat down and took in that information you would be like but, oh my god yeah but don't do that don't do well, that just no. enjoy it for what it is fun fun police brendan kelly over here uh-huh. okay so some of us take it right out of the can or you know maybe you put it on pie like kevin malone from the office i insult you Oscar. What? I insult you to your face. I don't know what you're talking about. Then why don't you do something about it? Kevin, are you trying to get me to hit you in the face with my pie? You don't have the guts. You stupid, dumb, do-do face. Yes! (laughs) Well, if you like whipped cream... You still probably wouldn't want to be the people in this story. Police are investigating after multiple people were hit in the face with plates of whipped cream in Greenville, South Carolina. I love this so much already. According to the police department, officers were called to an assault around 2.30 p.m. They told CBS 7 a woman was walking on the sidewalk, pushing her child in a stroller when a man... (laughs) her in the face <laughs> with a plate full of whipped cream. The only thing I don't like about this was that she was pushing a stroller. That that yeah. I take exception to, but everything else is hilarious. Uh, investigators said multiple people were attacked by the so-called whipped cream bandit, and they later identified the suspect as 22-year-old Andre Eugene Moore Gerald of Greenville, and they've issued a warrant for his arrest on a charge of assault and battery. Come on! It's just a prank. Assault More like and assault battery? Assault and bakery. Because ah, pastry, uh, yeah, I, was, I was reaching a bit. Yeah, yeah. 
pretty. No, I'll allow it. it. I'm going to allow it. But seriously, <laughs> there is there is nothing funnier than the pie in the face, it, right? It is oh, objectively. It is objectively one of the funniest crimes. It, don't get me wrong. It is a crime. It, just hitting people in the face with something is a crime. But it is one of the most. It's just so ridiculous. And when I read that headline for the first time, I like. I scream left. I couldn't believe it. And yes, this guy just went around hitting like six people in the face. <laughs> Why? How? There's no YouTube video. I couldn't find any social well, media this, like this challenge is... for this. He just totally. <laughs> as soon as I hear it, I think to myself, there has to be a camera hidden somewhere. And they're going to come back afterwards and give like each of these people a hundred dollar bill and say, thanks so much for being on our silly YouTube prank show or whatever. But when I hear a story like this, this is the first place my mind goes is like, okay, I have to get some whipped cream and I have to find a way to stuff it in the face of somebody in my life and then laugh at it because it's, it really is the funniest thing. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really do any damage, right? It's a little bit funny and silly and embarrassing for a few moments and you wipe it off and that's all good. It doesn't really do anything. It's not like you're like smashing someone's windows. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it probably would derail your day a little bit. Uh, and I imagine, like, what's the reaction? Like, <laughs> I would. Be I'm more, picturing like, the reaction. I know. <laughs> how do you, how do you process that immediately? Like, it happens. Bam! You get hit, and the guy just runs away. And then I imagine you just stand there still <sighs> for a good like that. 10, 15 minutes. You know, probably eat a little bit of the whipped cream, honestly. And then you go, yeah, I was just hit in the face with a pot. I know. And I mean, it has to be that any any person that gets pied or whipped cream like that, they're just going to stand there going, what just happened to me? Meanwhile, Ryan and Scott are running away laughing our tails. Yeah, I I would. I would. But I would gladly take that that plate of whipped cream in the face for anybody in this story that did not want to have it. That's you the know, type of person you are, Ryan. I take that, that bullet. <laughs> All right. All right. Are you okay with politicians? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I feel no, like. Oh, yeah. You got someone's got to no. do that job. Somebody has to do it. That's the thing. No, Somebody don't. has to do it. I feel like just the current generation of politicians is just very frustrating because there's these a couple of brilliant minds. And then just the worst. And I wish we had just more of a, eh, you know, crop where everybody was kind of just mild. I feel like that. I just wish we had that. Not this kind of crazy radical thing that's going on right now. It's very hard to keep up with. And it's exhausting to cover, though. You know, it's it's, it's just a lot to keep up with. Whether you're in, no matter what you're doing in life, it's just hard to keep up with politics these days. I mean, we don't even have like an actual leader of our federal opposition. We have an interim leader. And it's, it's, it's nonstop news every single day. And, you know, the guy in question hasn't even, he doesn't even have the job yet. And he's already, yeah. you know, I know what we're talking. Brendan, what do you think? Politicians? Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't like. I don't like any of yeah. them. I mean, it's just all about what you want to hear and votes, and yeah. not much of a concern for consequences down the line. Like zero percent mm, yeah, concern definitely. for consequences down the line. It's just about getting the votes today. So they're mm. all trying to sell you something, and uh, just uh, I'm not buying anymore. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really, I do see what you're saying and this is dangerous of going into a much bigger conversation about politics and how we you know structure uh the leadership and the organization of our country and stuff but i I do get what you're saying like they're all it's just two sides of the same coin right Uh, Mm -hmm. they all have their good that no one is going to like some great savior who's going to come in and like fix every problem in the country that's not going to happen it's not like you know Pierre Poliev is going to get elected and now housing is all of a sudden going to be 50% of what it was. That's never going to happen. But I just, I maintain this outlook of like, well, it's a job and it's a job that, I mean, I get it's well paid, but who would want to do it? And these people are like, you know, either egomaniacs or wanting to step up and at least try to, to serve the country. So I try to, I get it's like, Um, what's the word? Not head in the sand, but just altruistic. Like I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, over, but I want a little bit of sympathy. Okay. I, so yeah, I... to your guys' points, politicians constantly reinventing their image. They want to keep old voters hooked. Uh, French president Emmanuel Macron is trying to appeal to younger voters with a new look. But before we hear about that, let's talk about this very, very important election. The race for the presidency of France is too close for comfort for Emmanuel Macron and for many in the West who fear what will happen if he loses. Avec Madame Le Pen, fini. With Marine Le Pen, it's finished, says Macron, when it comes to foreign investment. Cette élection est aussi un référendum sur l'Europe. But it's also, he says, a referendum on Europe and whether France will turn hard right. Macron has used the world stage to bolster France's support for NATO and for weeks has tried to persuade Russia's Vladimir Putin to stop the war in Ukraine. Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate, has made it clear she would weaken ties to the European Union and to NATO and forge closer links to Russia. She favors what she calls a rapprochement between NATO and Russia. No one would be happier than Putin with a Le Pen victory for the French presidency. So it would be very, very serious for the, the NATO and Western support for Ukraine. Le Pen has toned down her established views on race in this campaign, appealing to voters on issues like the cost of living. I have the people behind me, she says. The first vote a week ago gave a narrow win to Macron over Le Pen, but together they won just half the votes. Left-wing candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon finished a close third. But where will his and other votes go now? The first time they squared off in 2017, Macron earned two-thirds of all votes against Le Pen. But this time looks closer. One projection puts Macron's margin at 54 to 46 ahead of this week's election. She's benefiting from classic support for populism. But populism might not be enough this year when war is on Europe's doorstep. That's Global's Eric Sorensen reporting. So with the stakes so high in France and the world, how is Emmanuel Macron appealing to voters? Well, with a new sexy photo, of course. what, What else would you do at such an important time, you guys? Sexy photo shoots. Sexy photos. That's that's what you do. Uh, His photographer posted some new photographs of the French president on social media. And the photo in question shows him lounging on a yellow sofa with his shirt half unbuttoned. What lays Uh underneath is a forest of chest hair that would make David Hasselhoff jealous. Is it going to help? We will find out in just a few days. I ask you, friends. 
Is this the everyman politician that you're talking about? The person who is not all, hey, I got the I got the shine on. Look at me in my fancy suit. Here we have a uh, world leader just letting it all hang out. You know, hey, just chilling on a couch with a shirt untucked and unbuttoned. You know, mm-hmm. is, is this it? Is this it does. Is this what we it would works. like to see? It works. Trudeau did it. It works. It it works. I mean, France has is probably the hardest place in the world to win an election. I would never be a politician in France. They, <laughs> you know, they don't know. There's a short turnaround uh, there. But I think you know, it's it's probably one of the ways. I think it's a. I think it's all right. It's. I think it's funny. It's good. It's a little casual, and it is a ridiculous amount of chest hair. <laughs> He's French. Uh, Brendan Kelly, does it do it for you? Or is this, it's worse, better or worse? No, this is just the stupid side of politics, which I don't even like already to begin with. I mean, it's just how. Right. It's interesting that they're trying, they're trying to make it better, but they're making it worse. Yeah. It's appealing to the lowest common denominator. No, it's just, I want to hear your policies. I don't want to see your chest hair. So, okay. So you like, that was going to be my question is what would, what would, uh, because I think as much as I, I liked Trudeau and I think he has done some good things, but he was notorious for the photo op, right? The, Hey, I just so happened to be in Stanley park when there's a couple getting married there. Maybe I'll just casually stroll in and we'll take, someone will catch it on photo and it'll go viral and look at me. I'm just an average normal guy, just like the rest of you, you know, like he's terrible for that. But I, 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 I don't know how else we can make them seem like normal people, you know? I, yeah, it's a really difficult thing, uh, politicians. Maybe we should just assume that uh, unbuttoned shirt and chest hair and stage photo ops is not the way. We'll cross that one off the list and uh, keep trying to think up ways that hopefully are the way. It's exhausting politics, right? To Ryan's point. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's good. It's good to have a laugh and take the piss out of it whenever we can. This is the Shift Podcast. I really enjoy getting to do this uh, on the occasions that I do. I like getting to uh, take part in the conversation that's happening across our country and and even beyond that and to hear from people with different outlooks and different ways of life than I have. And I think it's that sort of discourse and that discussion and that telling stories and talking and listening that uh, drives us forward and that is going to help us through uh, some of these difficult times that our world has been facing and will continue to face. And uh, I, I consider this a privilege that I get to do this and I get the opportunity to speak with uh, people like our next guest. Uh, Stepan Burko is a policy expert in Ukraine and uh, it's it's a pleasure to be able to welcome him here. He's been on the show before Ryan and Brendan and Shane, of course, have spoken with him, but I haven't gotten to. So this feels like a privilege for me. And uh, I don't mind telling you that I'm actually kind of nervous because, you know, it's it's great to have fun and goof around on the radio and, and all of that type of stuff. But this this feels serious. So uh, Stepan, thank you so much uh, for being here. And I'm I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. How are you doing? 
Uh, hi Scott, it's nice hearing you. Um, I'm doing okay. Um, as as I already um, told uh, your listeners and uh, Shane, I am located in Lviv, Western Ukraine, so it's uh, more or less safe here. But you know, as uh, uh, the, the the fights intensify in the east eastern front, uh, we are getting more missiles in the west. Yeah, so I would say the the war is still going uh, on as uh, as for two almost two months since it, it has started. Yeah, and I mean the I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be sort of my first question is is where do we find you? So you were in Lviv, and the news that broke today uh, here in Canada was that seven people were killed in Lviv uh, in a recent missile attack, and that to us felt like a bit of a shock because first of all, seven people were killed, and you know, heaven forbid. But also because, sort of to your point, Lviv has kind of been this place that has been safe, where mothers and and children and uh, people who are not uh, actively fighting the war have been able to go and at least feel kind of safe. Has that changed at all in the last 24 hours? Um, I mean... I wouldn't say it that it has changed drastically. We've had missile hits uh, even before yesterday, and uh, but we didn't have um, civilian infrastructure hit before because yesterday one of the missiles has hit a car repair shop, and all these seven uh, victims of this missile attack, they were civilians just working in this car repair shop. Moreover, uh, eleven more people were injured. Among them. Um, uh, um, a young boy, I think like 11 years old, uh, who with his mother, they have fled from Kharkiv on the eastern uh, uh, border of Ukraine, part of Ukraine, where they, they fled because Kharkiv was sh- heavily shelled by Russians. They came here to Lviv, as you said, hoping to be in a more safe place. And then uh, one of a sudden they got hit by a missile. Uh, which was uh, launched thousand kilometers uh, fr- from from this place. So I would say that uh, people don't think that Lviv is safe. Uh, it is safer than uh, any eastern city, but not safe at all. So uh, uh, I think and I hope that people are treating uh, air alerts more cautiously and hiding in, uh, you know, basements, because for some time, um, I would say that people were, you know, not following these instructions because they thought that, uh, uh, you know, missiles will not hit this city. But now we have evidence that that they not only hit, but they kill people and they kill civilians. Hmm. Wow, that's just so heavy. And to hear you describe uh, air air warnings and 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 the sirens that uh, warn you to to go down into the basements and people's need to take that seriously. How how often does that happen? How many times a day or a week do you hear those sirens? Hmm. It's usually, it, it depends. It, it goes like, you know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. 
for the last uh, few days it was no less than three uh, air sirens a day and mostly it's uh, a few of those uh, during the working day the business day and then one uh, right uh, um, around midnight and one uh, early, in early morning like 5 uh, a.m or 6 a.m so mm. four four air sirens a day wow so because i i'm just i want to to as much as i can put myself in your shoes when that happens and you seek shelter or you you go into a shelter or into a basement how long do you spend there before you feel like it's okay to come back out um i mean everyone or at least many people we have this application on our phones and uh, we get these air siren alerts on our phones and we are waiting for um for a message that it's safe to get out uh, sometimes uh, it's uh, like 40 minutes sometimes we're waiting for two or three hours for example mm -hmm. yesterday in the morning when the missiles hit uh, Lviv of course authorities decided you know that they have to check all the all the possibilities of uh, you know additional missiles being hit uh, and directed to Lviv so I think it was two hours almost two hours or two around two hours that we were waiting yesterday wow and then you see like you say that happens f three four times a day that's that's a lot that's a lot how do you feel because you sort of mentioned that people in Lviv weren't always taking that as seriously as you hope that they would and hopefully now they will Speak to the sort of um, mindset in the city. You refer to it as uh, the business day. What what is a normal day look like there right now, especially after uh, these missile attacks on on civilian infrastructure? What does a normal day look like? What's today like for you? Well, actually, it doesn't. Uh, it's not any different from uh, uh, from any other. I mean, days, a day of previous weeks. So people go to work, people go to shops, people go to cafes, people walk around. Uh, maybe when there is an air, uh, air alert, uh, some of those people go and hide in shelters, but not all of them. So uh, um, if you wouldn't know that there is war in Ukraine and, you, and if you don't hear the sirens, you wouldn't even tell that this is a city in the country that's uh, having, you know, a war uh, with uh, with another country, with Russia. So, uh, of course, uh, people are nervous. And when you go to any place like a post office or a shop, you hear people talking constantly about war. When will it end? And uh, what will it take for Ukraine to succeed? How more people will the uh, Russian army kill what is happening in Mariupol what has been happening in Bucha and other cities so this is the topic number one but people are getting used to live with this of course it's really hard to comprehend that you have to you know get used to live while people are dying and you know soldiers are fighting but I think it's uh it's inevitable because uh, the first weeks of war uh, you couldn't do anything and that means you can't work, you can't, uh, uh, you know, help uh, people, or volunteer, whatever. So you have to get used to this in order to to resume your 
uh, work or whatever you do and learn how to live in these new circumstances. And that's what people in Lviv do. Wow. I mean, the resiliency of the Ukrainian people and the people in Lviv, uh, it, it never ceases to, to blow my mind really. And to amaze me. And here in the West, we, I, I, we absorb and read and, and hear all of the, the news reports that, that sort of talk about that. And, you know, much has been said about, uh, your president and the spirit of soldiers and the, uh, yeah, the resiliency and your willingness to to fight and to not give up and to really take this this fight and to fight and to fight for your country and your homes and it it's so admirable and so remarkable. Uh, but for those people, like you say, I, I, I'm trying to picture this. It's just like a normal city. There's a there's a war going on and there's uh, air sirens sounding and people are sitting at cafes and working in in offices and those people like you say they they're aware that there's a war going on around them but the attitude is just very much these are our lives and we're going to keep living them that's incredible i think this is the only option we have uh, i mean there is another option you can flee the country uh, which is available only to women and children and uh, on the other hand when you leave your home and you live somewhere abroad um, you miss your home very hard when you're reading these news it uh, seems that you know when you're on you, when you're far away from the place where this is happening like missile strikes it seems that uh, whatever is happening on the ground is worse than it's, you know, in fact. So people who uh, fled Ukraine uh, to Poland or other European countries or Canada, I think uh, they have uh, another, uh, you know, uh, another challenge is to live with this constant uh, will to come back. I can I can talk about that because my wife and my uh, son they fled to Poland uh, and they have been there for already more than a month. And uh, there's no, uh, there, there's no, you know, um, every, every time when we talked, when I talked to them, the, the, the main topic is, is okay. What do you think? When will we be able to come back home? And it's not only, you know, adults, it's also children. Um, and also this uh, constant, uh, uh, fright for those people who are shelled uh, on the east so I would say um, until this war is uh, still going we have to live in these new circumstances uh, and uh, I mean it's um, you, you can know you, you cannot live for very long in, in, in a situation where you're mobilized to you know, help or to fight or to do something. If you want to live for in the long term, long, you know, this is a marathon, you have to get used to the new circumstances and you have to change the way you um, react to certain news. And I think that's what uh, all Ukrainians are trying to, to, to do. And Lviv is not an exception. 
Wow. Um, Stepan Burko, a policy expert from Ukraine, is my guest this evening. Uh, and I'm just I'm so grateful for your time, Stepan. And I I hear you talk about your wife and child that have uh, gone to Poland. I have wife and children of my own and, and I can't imagine. Um, but they ask you every day and, and, and I'd like to ask you as well. Uh, what do you see as uh, potential for outcome or or uh, change or shift in in the way that things are operating? You say you've sort of adopted this way, and and again, it's just so admirable and so incredible the resiliency and the willingness to simply this is my life and I'm going to keep living it. I love that. But do you anticipate any sort of timeline uh, for things to change or for some semblance of, of normalcy to come back to uh, Lviv and Ukraine? Huh. Uh, I think this is the question that we ask ourselves every day. Um, I think it's months uh, of active war. Uh, and everything will depend on the results uh, on the battleground. So if our, uh, our Ukrainian armed forces succeed in stopping Russian armed forces, uh, then this will probably, and it's my guess, I have no idea, but this is just my guess, that we will end up uh, with uh, this slow-moving uh, 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 from... Yeah, slow-moving war, like in, in Donbass, which we had for eight years. So we'll probably have something like that, but on a uh, much uh, bigger scale. And I don't think that Russia will uh, give up its uh, idea of um, regime change or conquering Ukraine uh, or you know shelling our uh, cities. I think uh, until Russian regime falls, we'll have um, this war going um, with, uh, you know, different faces, hot faces and more calm faces. Um, yeah, I think many people would like to have, you know, uh, a date uh, and, and, and know that everything will end by this day uh, because it's much easier to... to have you know to have hope uh, that you will uh, succeed in in this in this war but i think uh, we are in a situation uh, where we can't have this date unfortunately russia's objective is to uh, you know dissolve ukrainian state and eradicate ukrainian nation and that's not an option for us and mm. that means uh, that we have very little ground for negotiation so, so that is why I think it's it's it all depends on the results at the battlefield, right? And I suppose one of the things that it's just so uh, it it feels trite to to say this that uh, we're thinking of you and our our prayers are with you and our hearts are are with you. But what what would you like to see happen from the international community or uh, from Canadians? And and maybe answer this like both on a on a political and you know governmental level and also like uh, it, again I, I recognize that it feels trite but I wish that there was something that I could do. Are there things that we can do? Are there ways that we can help? What what do you need? 
Mm, this, I mean, number one priority, and that's what our uh, officials are saying, it's uh, weapons. And uh, slowly but, and gradually, but Western democracies have been uh, providing Ukraine with more heavy weapons. Maybe not as fast as we would like, because, you know, uh, um, Russian forces are shelling now and today, and uh, weapons are coming tomorrow or next week or next month. So first priority from uh, Western governments is weapons. The second priority I would everyone from the from the top to to leadership to the uh, very soldier who has uh, looted houses raped ukrainian women or killed innocent people on the streets uh, we will not feel that uh, justice has uh, prevailed um, and the third one what uh, regular canadian people can do first of all uh, that's what you are already doing. I know that uh, many Ukrainians have uh, um, uh, have left for Canada, and uh, Canadians are already helping Ukrainian families to um, to uh, find a place to live and uh, to to find the job and stuff like that. So uh, you you are already doing a great job. Uh, but uh, what else you can do is to support Ukrainian um, NGOs that are supporting uh, Ukrainian army. Um, for example, there are uh, stay alive, there's a stay alive fund, uh, which works uh, directly with Ukrainian armed forces and delivering them uh, much needed uh, help, uh, life vests uh, and some other body armor and stuff, which helps them to be more effective on the battle battleground. I know that uh, many Western uh, uh, societies they support international organizations like International uh, Red Cross, but unfortunately we can see, and I'm just telling you what people here are talking, that this uh, these organizations like the Red Cross they're not using these funds very effectively. For example, they're opening some uh, refugee play, uh, refugees uh, camps in Russia. Uh, and actually, in fact, helping Russian authorities to uh, move, illegally move people from occupied territories of Ukraine. So if you want to help Ukraine to win this war, uh, I call on you to uh, support uh, not international organizations like Red Cross, but Ukrainian NGOs. And the great example that I can give you is... Uh, uh, stay alive fund okay thank you Stepan. we will absolutely uh check that out and you know take that information to heart uh Stepan burko uh he's a policy expert in ukraine he's in lviv this morning in ukraine um it's a privilege to speak with you and thank you so much for your time and for your information and uh, I wish you nothing but the best. And I truly hope that we get a chance to speak again. Thank you for your time this morning, Stepan. Thank you, Scott. It was nice talking to you. And uh, my greetings to all Canadians with Easter holidays. This is the Shift Podcast. I am very thrilled uh, to bring on our next guest. Her name is Jamie Liu, and uh, she is uh, a lawyer. 
a law professor, a podcaster, and an author. And I'm excited about this because there's a lot of talk uh, about immigration right now. It's a major point in our country. Uh, a lot of people discussing it and there's a war going on and a lot of people are coming to or want to come to Canada. And one of the things that I think uh, comes up every time we discuss this, at least for me, is uh, I, it helps me realize how often I take for granted the fact that I am Canadian and get to live in what I consider to be, and many consider to be, uh, one of, if not the greatest countries in the world. And I want to ask about that. Uh, but before we dive into all of that, thanks so much for being here, Jamie. It's fantastic to have you. And l let me ask you this. Why is it that uh, you chose to do this? Why did you get into law and immigration and why do you do what you do? Well, first of all, I think it's a really interesting area of law. It's constantly changing and it really is about people wanting to have a better life for themselves. And personally, my family immigrated to Canada in the 70s and uh, my father was a former stateless person. And so it is a personal thing for me that I feel there's a lot of people in the world who benefit from migration, from finding new homes, and for finding uh, a home for for those of us that uh, might have uh, connections or links to people who come from war-torn or problematic places in the world where they don't feel at home. Mm -hmm. Now, what was that like for you going through that process? Well, I was born in Canada, so I am not a migrant. I am Canadian. And so a lot of my thinking, um, a lot of the work that I do, a lot of the research I do is focused on um, illuminating the stories of those people, you know, stories and challenges and hardships that people undergo to find a home for themselves. Um, most of my work focuses on how law affects their chances, how legal barriers may prevent people who otherwise would benefit from an immigration process might not and mm -hmm. why immigration laws might treat certain people unfairly compared to others so that's where my thinking is and my hope and benefit i hope that my work benefits people who might find it difficult to come to canada or um, need to seek haven um, in canada okay so growing up with your family and knowing that story is this something that you like from a very young age you knew this or did was it sort of an inevitability or at what point in your life did you think like, this is what I'm going to do? I didn't know I was going to do it till I finished law school, but I did know my dad was previously stateless growing up. And I had thought that it was a very uncommon thing, but as I practiced immigration law and I started researching on statelessness, I began to realize that it was actually quite common. There are millions of people around the world and a lot of them are children who are stateless, who can't call any state their home, who have no citizenship whatsoever. So a lot of my work now focuses on bringing more attention to that, on examining why it is that, it, that people find themselves stateless and the hardships they encounter. For example, a lot of people around the world can't go to school, can't access medical care, can't find a job and can't rent or get a bank account and things like that. So it is a really hard life. And if there's any... Uh, contribution I can make to alleviate some of that for some people. My hope is that my work can do that. Mm, that's really cool to hear. Um, so I guess maybe speak to this if you can. So you grew up in, because are you in Ottawa? Is that right? Yes, I'm in so, Ottawa. But did you grow up in Vancouver? 
or around? No, Vancouver? I didn't. I grew up in BC, but not oh, okay. in Vancouver. BC. Mm-hmm. In, so in we sort of hear this like um, Vancouver, Canada, melting pot sort of sort of idea. Do you think that being Canadian or as a because I like I'll be the first to say I am cis white male born out in greater Vancouver, uh, done like the very touristy travel type stuff. So and this is why I'm so fortunate and grateful to be able to speak with you is like, I don't, I want to know more about this and I don't know enough about this, but do you think that as Canadians, we are uh, a better understanding of some of this stuff because of that sort of melting pot identity, whether or not that's even really true or not, but, or, or are we just as, just as unawares as everybody else and need to be educated about it as everybody else? I think there still needs to be a lot of work, especially if we saw during the pandemic, there was a lot of anti-Asian mm. uh, harassment and violence going on. And I'll just speak from my own personal experience that, uh, you know, in early in my research, I was doing some research on um, people who are giving birth in Canada who might not be uh, here with permanent residence. They might have temporary residence. And this was colloquially called as birth tourism. And mm. I started getting... Um, emails and messages from people saying, you know, this is a problem. Uh, there are pregnant Asian women walking around all over Vancouver and Richmond, and we should put a stop to it, that they're just here to get the Canadian passport. And it just made me think about what people must have thought of me when I was pregnant hmm. walking down the street. And the fact that people assume I'm not from here just by looking at me, the, pe- the fact that people might assume I'm a foreigner that I don't belong here. And so th- one of the messages I wanted to convey in my novel was that membership to our community is not one in which people can assume, right? That they should really look around their communities and rethink about who they um, and how they use a default mechanism to determine who is part of their community or not. And it really struck me in doing all those media interviews and talking publicly about whether or not birthright tourism is a problem in Canada or not, that Canada really has a lot of work left to be done in understanding who are Canadians and why is it that certain people who are Canadians still don't feel like they fully belong in our community. Yeah. And even just to sort of hear you talk about that, I mean, I've never been pregnant or had anybody, you know, sort of make those sort of uh, uh, assumptions about me, but like even on a smaller scale, and this is so interesting to me and I've thought about it before. So I recently moved from East Vancouver to North Vancouver. And one of the things that, you know, like at my daughter's school, she's in kindergarten and all of the sort of friends and people that we meet and stuff. Anytime someone is describing like a new member of our sort of friend group or community, we kind of, people say, oh, they're just like us. Like that kind of is the, oh, they're this age doing this type of work in this city. And sometimes I just feel like, isn't that kind of a shame that it's like, that's what we, I moved to this place, not to be around people just like me. I moved here because it just happened to work out for my family, but there's just this, Oh, you live here now. So you, you must be like this. You must be into mountain biking and whatever, (laughs) uh, like whatever the other things are. And I get that's, that's all like anecdotal and stuff, but it's almost like we just do it. Um, like almost naturally, I get like, do you think that this is something that we have, we have to intentionally uh, work against? Or is it like this, this is the way we are, because this is the way the world around us is? 
Yeah, and so I think you're right that there there's a lot of assumptions that people make, but these assumptions don't come out of thin air or out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my own research really examines how the law has shaped the way that we think. And if you look at immigration law and the history of immigration law, you know, racialized people have been um, subject to different kinds of immigration measures than other kinds of people. There's preferential treatment given all the time in our immigration system, and this trickles down the messages that the law gives in the way that we allow people to be talked about, whether you are an illegal or whether you are doing things irregularly or whether you have, um, you know, the rhetoric that we even hear from politicians about jumping the queue and things like that really affects, you know, public sentiment and psyche and, and discourse and discussion about who is it that belongs here, whether people cheated to get into Canada, mm. whether people are taking advantage of the system, these kinds of language and um, discussions don't just come out of thin air. They, they come from the way that our immigration system is structured, the way we talk about immigration applications, the way politicians um, develop or promote the programs that they're um, instituting in, in the development of our immigration system. And so I think a lot of work has to be done, and especially at the top. I'm a huge critic of how the government mm-hmm. uh, deals with immigration flows and what kinds of Uh, people are able to access faster applications, for example, or certain visa offices are seem to be more functioning than others, Mm. you know, things like that. So it really affects what the public perceives as okay. Right. Yeah. And I mean, all, like so much of this is stuff that I take for granted. So again, I'm, I'm just so grateful for, for being able to do this. Uh, Jamie Liu is who we're speaking with. She is a lawyer, law professor, and podcaster specializing in immigration, refugee, and citizenship law. Her po- podcast is called Migration Conversations. Is that correct? Perfect. Just want to make sure that I get that right now. Okay. So I want to get into some of this. You mentioned some of the, the law and policy around immigration. Obviously there's a lot of talk around that with what's happening now in Ukraine. Um, uh, we've said, Hey, we'll take as many Ukrainians, get them here. We're all good. Like open the doors, which is a wonderful thing to hear about on the surface, but there have been people who have been wanting to come to Canada from other not great places for a long time before this refugee crisis. And you mentioned a couple things previous there that like, and again, I'm totally showing my naivety here, but like preferential treatment in who sort of gets these type of thing. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the Ukrainian example, I think is a very timely and illustrative piece in all these um, the things that we've been talking about. And first and foremost, I do want to say that, you know, there's some pros and cons to the way that the government's responding to the Ukrainian crisis. The pro is that they recognize it's an urgent thing that needs to be addressed by allowing people to come as quickly as possible. But they're not being recognized as refugees in the sense that they're only given temporary status. Once they come here, you know, it's only recently that the government has started turning its mind to, oh, actually, resettlement is is needed. They might need income supports. There's only discussions now starting on on that aspect. On the other hand, we see, you know, communities um, calling for the government to really expedite the Afghan refugee applications and process. And that's problematic, too, because even though they are being recognized as refugees and undergoing a refugee resettlement um, process, that process is quite lengthy. It requires more paperwork and more application time processing. Um, And so 
on the one hand, we have a very quick response with the Ukrainians, but they're not getting the same benefits as a refugee resettlement program. Afghans, very slow, not addressing the very urgent needs that they need, but they're getting the refugee resettlement benefits. And my hope is that the government kind of takes the best of both of these situations and cobbles together something where there's urgent response where people can come right away, have them process the rest of their application here and treat them all as refugees that can be resettled here to access all of the benefits that come with being a refugee, like income supports and resettlement services from um, organizations on the ground. Yeah, it's a lot. So again, for a person who would be uh, totally new to this conversation, like how long is that process? Like say you're Ukrainian, you say we're going to, we need to get out of here and we've, we found a way to get to another country and we can get a flight to Canada. How long does that process take until it's like, great, we are Canadians now, or we're landed immigrants or explain what that sort of process would look like. Yeah. So they're receiving visa applications right now, but the problem is that the government has asked for certain Ukrainians to undergo biometric testing, which is the collection of fingerprints, uh, you know, picture ID, maybe iris scans, depending on the biometrics they're, co- they're collecting. And that takes time. They need to make appointments with, you know, visa officers in different locations around Europe. Um, and, you know, the last I heard is that it can take weeks for that to occur. And then there's processing. So, you know, we had expected Ukrainians to be arriving by now, and um, there's delays in the application process. So I expect a lot more people will be coming in the months to come. The Afghans have been waiting for months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's concerns that resources have shifted from the Afghan file to other files, such as the Ukrainian file. You know, the government has assured us that, you know, that's not the case, that you can simultaneously process different applications in the queue, but we're not really sure how the sausage is made. That's not very transparent, so to speak. Um, And so people are waiting months and sometimes years for applications to be processed. I was involved in um, resettling Syrian refugees during that time, and it took years, literally, for some of the families that we processed. And you can imagine the kind of existence that some people had to live in um, refugee camps abroad um, and what difficulties they had to endure while waiting and not knowing when a decision will come. Yeah. And again, I just, I wish that it was uh, simpler or, you know, like we hear this headline of, Hey, we'll take as many, as many immigrants as, or refugees as, as we need to take, we'll figure it out, just get them here. Uh, and then we kind of, it, it kind of fades to the black, like three day old news, just like, just like everything does. But then you understand that, no, these things that doesn't happen overnight and it's not that easy and there's all sorts of red tape or, or what, and it's not even necessarily clear, which this pandemic has shown about so many things, but okay. So ultimately, because we've been talking about Afghanistan and Ukraine as kind of the two most recent uh, in, in a lot of people's memories, how many people do you think you can give me a ballpark number? We'll see uh, come to Canada and what benefit do you think? Cause I want to focus on the positive of this. What benefit will us as a country and, and as Canadian citizens get out of having all of these people come to Canada? Yeah. You know, I don't know how many people will get to come to Canada. Um, <laughs> just to complicate things, I'll throw in another example. You know, when Hong Kong was, um, you know, in the news, Canada had pledged to allow residents of Hong Kong to come to Canada on temporary resident visas, similar to what they're offering Ukrainians. And some people were denied visas and some people are now having to 
you know, apply for refugee protection in, in, you know, once they get here. And I think that it's going to be really complicated where it's Canada is kind of experimenting right now. So I really don't know how many are going to be coming or how many will be approved. And some people might um, stay in Europe. They might not come to Canada. Canada is another step away from Ukraine. And so it's hard to know how many people will actually come. Having said that, you know, I think history tells us that refugees are one of the most um, contributing members of our society. And we shouldn't, you know, expect um, refugees to be economic migrants in that sense, right? Canada um, has a humanitarian program for a reason to allow people to find safe haven here to avoid death and torture and all kinds of persecutory consequences. But having said that, refugees have proven to be one of the most uh, contributing members of our society. They contribute economically. Their children are the um, ones that are most uh, likely to go to university or college and end up, you know, working in professional fields. And so I think, you know, Canada has now a history of showing that. We also, if you want to look at the Ukrainian example, we're home to a lot of Ukrainian refugees already who came after the Second World War and many of their children are now, you know, lawyers, doctors who are now trying to help their kin abroad. So it's really interesting to watch history kind of repeat itself, sadly. Um, But I would say that there's no downside for Canada, especially for a country that needs immigration in order Mm. to um, keep its population up, so to speak. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And man, there is so much to this conversation and so much to unpack. And I, I really hope that you will come back on the show and that we'll get an opportunity to discuss this more because uh, unfortunately we do have like some time limits, but I just like, I want to know more and, and hear more about your work, but I also want to touch on your book because you have this new book, Dandelion. Uh, so on top of all of the things that you do, you're a lawyer, you teach law podcast, in, do interviews on our show, all of this incredible stuff. Why did you decide to write a book? Well, my book is actually kind of, you know, another piece of the research that I do. Um, I was at the time doing research on statelessness in Asia. And a lot of the stuff that I was hearing from stateless people themselves, and even my own family members who were previously stateless, I couldn't really insert into my academic work perfectly. So I started experimenting with creative writing. And I found I really loved the process of writing and was captivated by it. And, you know, the first draft I did write in three months, but it did take me years to kind of refine the draft and make it to what it is today. But having said that, I think, you know, it's a really cathartic process to process the stories that you've heard from other people, but also it's a wonderful way to convey, as you said, like very complicated and Um, ideas or issues that I think people should know more about. And so one of the things that I hope that comes out of writing this is that people do become more aware of what migrants experience, how they feel, what challenges they face. Um, You know, and I just think about, um, you know, at a time when I was doing research, just um, how, you know, remarkable it is that my father came to Canada as a former stateless person. And now, you know, we're talking about it in, in academic terms and that it's still an issue out there. So, you know, it's kind of an homage to, to those who have yet to maybe uh, find a home and, and find a place where they can themselves thrive in the work that they find passion in. Super cool. Uh, the book is called Dandelion. It comes out April 26th and uh, you can pre-order it now at your website or of course on Amazon, uh, your website, 
jcyliu.com. Yes. Getting that right. Okay, perfect. Uh, Jamie Liu has been with us. She is a lawyer, law professor, podcaster, and of course, author. Thank you so much for what I consider to be a very illuminating conversation. And um, also, like, thank you for the work that you're doing and making our country a great place, uh, both for the people that are here and the people that are coming here. And um, I really hope that we get to talk again. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 